0: I'm now on the record. Um, morning. I am aware that I've slightly drawn an Ephesians short straw. In the, um, Ephesians is such a glorious, upbeat, loving book as Paul writes to these people who he seems to really love. It's not got the niggly politics of Corinthians where Paul comes over all passive-aggressive at times. And he's sort of trying to explain to these people, yeah, I'm still the apostle, thanks. And, um please remember that. Ephesians seems to be full of, of love and grace for these, to these people. And then I get the list of rules. And um, I'd like to publicly, on the record, thank Tim for that. Yeah, what is the title? The standards God, the standards God expects of his community. The standards God expects of his community, you see. I get a list of rules. Okay. Which is all good fun. And... Um, Paul's list of rules are always interesting because you always get these incredibly dark negatives and then really seemingly banal positives. You throw off all these terrible things and then you replace them with kindness. And, um, and he does that a bit today, but we'll, ha- we'll have a look at this. Um, we'll try and... I'm, I'm aware that you're not Ephesians and so you all come from a different context and, and the context that Paul wrote into isn't the context that you now live in and so I'm not going to spend ages going through each of the lines of Paul's instructions for your life and to try and persuade you that that is exactly what you should do today. Because I'm not sure that's really what the Bible is for. It's not a, a sort of proof text constitution for us to line by line treat like that. It is a letter. It's a letter. And we've got to say What is Paul saying to these people and what from that can we find? Paul is doing something very specific at the time in that it's in that phase of Paul's books when they're dealing with something of a crisis in behaviour in the church. And the crisis is effectively that Jesus isn't coming back as quick as they thought. And that's an uncomfortable thought for them because I think at that time when the church was first starting off most of them thought he'd be back pretty quick you know, the theory was maybe Tuesday the, the fact will I see it in my lifetime was pretty much definite and the actual question is you know, let's not make plans it was sort of the good version of get your, to get your house in order he could get back any minute and they were having to deal with something that's, that's actually very difficult in that this hopeful thing wasn't coming in the way they thought it was. And people were starting to die of old age and not see it. And the church was beginning to feel, you know, beginning to change and have more and more people in it who'd never never met Jesus and it was growing and it was all changing and this hopeful thing wasn't happening. And Paul is responding to this and you find this in his later books. He's trying to say... He's, for want of a better phrase, I know we won't like this phrase, he's kind of building a religion. He's kind of saying we're going to have to have some doctrine, some stuff we believe, and we're going to have some standards, some ways we live, and we're going to have some things that make us unique as a community of people who follow Christ. Because it's no longer a case of just mad evangelism until Christ returns, because he might be here on Tuesday. It's now something longer and deeper and more about pilgrimage and more about being set in the world but not of the world. And these things are happening in Paul because he's trying to make sense of a new scenario for the church. We are no longer in that scenario in that we are in the long term bit of the church where we've understood something about. We feel more comfortable in our role of carrying a baton for our generation. And we know that we might see Jesus in our lifetime. But we also know that we might not. Because that's where we are. Um, and so he's... I mean, he goes straight in in, in 17. He, you know, he goes straight in and he says that he's here to say no longer live like Gentiles. He is setting out in this passage how we live to be different from Gentiles. Shall we read it and have a look? And we'll go through it. It's quite a big chunk, but I think it's worth reading. It's quite easily really. It's quite it's quite a good one. And it, we, we're going in in Ephesians four verse seventeen. So we're following on from Sue last week, and we're just ducking through into Ephesians five down to um, verse twenty, which means wives submit your husbands is someone else's to unpick next week. Mm-hmm. Good luck with that. Um, and it does, it does jump over a chapter as these things do, because you know why they jump over chapters. It's all about people doing the homework at the last minute. So I just love. It's what I would have done. The chapters were added by bishops, and they all were sent away to, write the, to add the chapters and verses to the Bible, and then they came back to a conference when they would present their work and clearly they all did it on the back of a donkey on the way back to the conference and they were using a pen you can't rub out which is why sometimes these chapters are nonsense Is because someone went oh it's a bump and um, anyway that's a true fact that's a bit of actual theology I'm not making up I'm pleased with that anyway so my one I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just to confuse you all but um, so Ephesians 4 verse 17 "With with the Lord's authority I say this Live no longer as the Gentiles do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives, because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't what you learnt about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature... And your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth. We are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. For anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you're a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behaviour. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. And into chapter 5. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater. Worshipping the things of the world. Don't be fooled by those who try and excuse these sins. For the anger of God will fall, on, or will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, "Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves, making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There we go. So this is Paul outlining a little of what he thinks the community of God looks like as a contrast to the Gentiles, as a contrast to the the community of Ephesus, to the people outside of the church. And he's being very clear that there should be distinction in, in in what we are like to what the world is like. And that, that's very important. He's very clear on that. Um, for me, as you go through it, there's kind of three contrasts he makes. My, I've just changed page, there we go. There's three contrasts he makes. And you can find them in the kind of sections that your Bible has probably divvied them up into, which is useful. So you've got one set of contrasts that are happening in 17 to 31 And then you've got another lot going on in 1 to 10. And then 15 to 20, you've got a third one. And I'd like to look at those three, because for me, this is where we can find some principles in what Paul is saying. These hallmarks of what he thinks this community could look like, should look like. And then that gives you some space to pull these into your context and think about what that means for you, and what that means for your relationships and what that means for our relationships as a, as a community. Um, it's easy to kind of individualise this stuff but we're pretty sure that was never Paul's intention. There's something which has happened in humanity since Paul called modernism when we all became individuals and we all sung hymns with I in them and we still do it because we're still modernists. Some of us will be post-modernists, but most of us, you can tell by our shirts, but most of us are still modernists, which means that when we have a time of worship and we have a song that says, we, 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 not in French, but just lots of we's, you'll find the worship leader will naturally, as a modernist, go, let's sing this as I. And they say that because they're a modernist, they're an individualist, and so their faith is individual, them and God. These are not modernists, these are people whose faith is a community. And they understood themselves as believers in a community. And they had a corporate relationship with God. And so, when he's talking about these rules, these are not individual morals to stick to your fridge. They're not supposed to be on your fridge. These are the hallmarks of our community life together. Because that's what Paul... Paul is talking to a, writing to a church. He's writing to a, a company of believers in Ephesus. And they're not modernists. So they don't, they don't change all their hymns so they have an eye in them. Why are we changing hymns, Sue? Just as an aside. I'm, I'm staggered by it. We've had with crown, many crowns have now been changed. Previously, we've lost amazing grace. Where will this madness end? It's extraordinary. Um, that's nothing to do with this, though. Sorry. I just sat there thinking, why, are we, why do we change this? I'd like to take a, a stake in the ground for well, let's just leave these hymns alone. Um, yes, I've lost my flow. I got distracted by hymns. So yes, these are rules for a community. These are are standards for a community. Rules is a bad word. Standards for a community. And context is going to be key. We've got to find how these standards fit in our context, in our culture. It's not as simple as just reading them and going, we'll just do what it says. Because people in the past in Christianity have been faithfully doing what it says whilst keeping slaves they did. The Church of England owned slaves. There's a thought for you. It was that normal. And when Wilberforce stood up against it, Christians quoted the Bible at him to show him why he was wrong. So it's not as simple as just going, it says this, we'll just do what it says. Because you have to think about how does this work in my culture? How does this fit? And, you know, and equally, there'll be things you know that we do now that Christians in a hundred years will look at us and go, you, I mean, I wonder whether if they're up to their neck in seawater, they might look at us in 200 years and go, you had three cars. you seen what it was doing. This creation God gave us, you had three cars. You ate meat because you thought it was nice and all that methane and all that stuff was... I wonder. But anyway, these, so we've got to find these principles that Paul is, is sowing timelessly into the community that we then need to get hold of and work out what they look like for us today. It's not about, here are a list of rules, stick them to the fridge, do what they say. Right. 17 to 25 of of chapter 4. There's a big contrast going on here between what's going on in the minds of the believers and what's going on in the minds of unbelievers in the the King James if you happen to have it they're described, the, the mind of an unbeliever is described as futile go on Paul, don't hold back in my new living they're full of darkness and they're contrasted with a spirit that renews minds and there's a contrast between the renewed mind of the believer and the dark futile thinking of the unbeliever and then he continues this, this sense of contrasting. So people are in, in, in God's kingdom are thinking differently. The attitudes are different. And then he, he drifts in, he then contrasts behaviours. And he starts to talk about, you know, people who are stealing should start working so they can give. People who are engaging in foul language should start encouraging people. So this is a, a kingdom for this is a community with people thinking differently, with people speaking differently, with people acting differently. It's a community that sounds different. I'm having to go quite fast, because I know that time is always an issue. But a lot of what we come on to is about how this kingdom sounds, how this community sounds, how people speak to each other, how people engage with each other. I just wrote, after I read it, I wrote a little note that just said, this is a community that sounds and feels different. And that's actually important, because Paul labours it. And he contrasts the two ways of speaking, the two ways of thinking, and the two attitudes. It's a bit like... It's a bit like... Humans, we can sense this stuff. We kind of know what communities are like when we walk into them. It's a very random thing that I happen to know about, so I can tell you about it. Um, When I did my disastrous geography degree, I worked with, for a while, the doctor called Dr Pocock, who was completely mad... And um, he was an experiential geographer. And the thing he worked on is why people feel at home in places. That was his, is why people want to stay in a place. And when uh, the council says, you can live somewhere nicer, they say, no, I'll, I'll stay here, it's home. And why in the develop, in developing world, they'll build a new town next to the slums and the people won't move out the slums to, into the new town. Because it's home. And there's something about being a human, that we sense things and we feel things and we feel our home in places. And one of the things he made us do was he, walked, he made us walk blindfolded around towns. As, as, as this is proper academic research, this is not just a huge practical joke. <laughs> Although you do start to wonder. He made us walk blindfolded around towns. And I had the joy of walking blindfolded around the town of Boston in Lincolnshire. And um, the weird thing about it is if you walk blindfolded around a town. i would never been there before. That was why I got selected for Boston. I had no no prior knowledge of Boston. And you walk around it, and um, the person who's your researcher with you keeps asking you questions and writing down how you're feeling about the place and what you think about the place. And the really peculiar thing is, at the end, pretty much everything you say about the town is right. And it's not just that you work out you're by a road or you can hear a train. You actually... You know that thing where you walk through a town centre and you get the kind of the cheapy shops, and the bus station, and if you're not from the area, it can be a bit intimidating, because it often is in that bit of town. It's not when you live there, and when you live there, everyone laughs at you for being intimidated, but you are, because you're not from there, and you go into the town centre, and it feels nice when there's cafes. And if you're blindfolded, you'll spot all that. You won't just know you're in the town centre, you'll know you're in the rough end of town. And as you walk into the nice bit, you'll know that, because you're a human, and you're very switched on to your space. And what Paul seems to be saying... This is a very random jump, I know. Is that, as a community, we're a place where if someone walked in here blindfolded, they would just feel good about it. It would just feel good. Now, Paul gives a list that worked for his place, but we need to think about that for us. And in particular, I felt like this, this whole passage was felt like Paul writing to our missional community groups just felt like Paul, it was like that was in our context of our church, maybe that's one of the things this work, this, this verse, these verses go into, is are we as a community, a place where if someone walked in, they would feel shut off from us, or would they feel the warmth and the love and the transformed lives of people full of, of hope and love, it seems to me that Paul is saying that this is a community which sounds and feels different brackets in a good way Close brackets. Um, the contrasts are between bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words. And they contrast to kindness, tender-heartedness. Paul, as I said, Paul's, Paul's negatives always sound so much worse than his positives. But there you are. Kindness, tender-heartedness. A community that feels like this, that as people walk into it, they sense it. A sense of kindness, of tender-heartedness. As ever with Paul, it's a little bit more challenging than you first realised. That living as that community is harder than you think. There seems to be something from Paul that that community deals with anger well. It doesn't say you can't be angry. You're allowed to be angry. You're allowed to be cross. But it's how it's dealt with. It's anger which is controlled it's anger which doesn't explode. And it's anger which is put down before we go to sleep. You're allowed to be cross with each other still. But it's crossness which is balanced with this tender heartedness. And which is dealt with. Which is great. So the first hallmark which I suppose I felt in those, those verses in, in chapter 14. The first hallmark is a community that feels Good. A community that, has, that sounds good. That when you listen and you hear the conversations around you, it feels like a positive place to be. Chapter 5. There's lots in, chat, in this first bit that we could, we could talk on for a great deal. And I'm trying to get it down into one point because I'm aware that time is tight. But we have contrast here again. Paul once more setting up how people live in the Gentile world with how people should live in this new community, in this new community with Christ at the centre. And he starts by saying, imitate God therefore in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself to us as a sacrifice for us. A pleasing aroma to God. So, point one from Paul. Point two we can have, can't we? A community full of love. And it's a love that follows the Christ love pattern, which is not about, which is a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that pushes others before yourself. It's a a, a love that in, in the Jesus model lays down life. Friend. That is the the love that Jesus speaks of. It's a, it's a, that Jesus models. And he then contrasts that with sexual immorality, impurity, greed are the big three themes that come up. And I suppose you could, because you're always dodgy, aren't you, on Sunday morning, bringing sexual immorality into this. But I suppose what Paul is using those things to contrast is, is, is its selfishness versus self-sacrifice. That Paul and the Bible and God isn't anti-sex. It was given as a gift to be held in relationships that are self-sacrificial. And so sexual immorality is sex which exists outside self-sacrifice. Impurity, greed... Isn't it interesting how often the church wants to talk about sexual immorality? How literally it wants to talk about greed. And here they are sat next to each other. Just as bad. On the same list. But greed, again, greed is selfishness. Greed wants it for myself. And wants all of it for myself. And doesn't want you to have it. And if you've got it, greed wants it off you. Self-sacrifice says, all that I have is yours. And he's contrasting communities. He's looking at a community full of immorality, impurity and greed. And he's holding that intention against a community of Christ followers who model the Christ love, which is to self-sacrifice and see others as more important. So it's a second hallmark of this community. And there's lots of detail here that I'm aware I'm jumping over. But it's already 20 past 12, and I think that probably means I'm supposed to have finished. So <laughs> and there's, there's 18 points. So the first point is a community which looks and feels and smells and is different as we sense it around us. The second point is a community which is full of self-sacrificial love. A love which puts others before ourselves. And then, 15 to 20, if you'd ever, if you grew up in the church as a teenager, this was one of the great proof texts. It was one of the great proof texts. There's certain proof texts. You know what I mean by proof texts? Is you've got a point you want to make to a group of teenagers and you need a verse to back it up. And you need, a, and these are one of, this verse is one of the great proof texts. It's not, it's really, really lousy theology, just to grab a verse. You did, you did. Did you see? Did you see it on Facebook this week? Someone had found in their room, you know the, you know the cart, you get those, those tear off pads and you get a Bible verse every day. And their Bible verse of the day was, "If you bow down before me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth." And the person doing it hadn't noticed that Satan talking to Jesus. That's, I mean, that would be an extreme case of proof texting. That sounds great. That sounds like if we bow down before God, we inherit the earth. I'll drop that in. Ignoring. Context here is king. And context here will, will kill you on that one. Um, I mean, that's, that's not even pound short store, is it? That's going to have to go back to the shredders. Um, but yes, the proof text here from, from teenage life was um, don't get drunk with wine. Don't go out and have fun. Stay at home. Um, here's a proof text to help you. Um... That one, it was that one, and do not yoke yourself with unbelievers. That one was a proof text as well. It rocked out all the time. Um, we can have a... You know, it's not, like, not a conversation for now about whether those two things are right or wrong, but it's a, it's, a, it's a danger with the Bible that we try and use these verses of proof text to support our previously held views. Um, for me, in this section, Paul is, is playing contrasts again. And the contrast here is between the drunken futility of one community and and, and the joyfulness of another one. That seems to be what he's contrasting. Drunkenness can look like joyfulness, but it's futile. But there's a joyfulness in God's community which is deep and significant and is part of what holds us together. Do you see the difference there? That this is there's something much more significant happening here than don't get drunk, you naughty teenagers. He's contrasting the futility, all the things I love the fact I don't know if he's you never know with Paul whether he's just throwing this stuff out or planning at great length. Sometimes he's planning at great length, sometimes he is just throwing it out. I love this, because all the things he goes on to say are the kind of things that drunk people do. So he says, don't get drunk on wine, instead be filled the Holy Spirit. But then he says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making music. You could have a group of drunk people could do this, have a great time. So there's something between the futility of the drunkenness and the purpose and the, the focused joyfulness of the community of the believers that singing psalms, spiritual songs among yourselves, making music of the Lord, and giving thanks for everything. This is a community which is joyful because it's thankful. There seems to be a link there, that our joyfulness comes through our thankfulness. That we are in, our, in, in all that God has done for us as a community, and all that we have received together in Christ, there is a joyfulness that comes from our thankfulness, that contrasts powerfully with the futility of the drunken, he would call them a pagan, because that's how Paul likes to speak. Um, So, and then, we could move on to why Paul talks about wives and husbands. I'm going to leave that for Pete. Just put the kind of worms lid back on. Put it back there. Good luck with that. I'm out of the kids, but I've got a feeling I'll know what you said. So, for me, as Paul... So, to, to recap, to finish. Paul, is, Paul is, is trying to structure a community. They are people who are having to work out what it means to be pilgrims living in this world where they are going to have to wait and live in it for Jesus. He is not coming back as soon as they intended expected. And so, Paul, for me, is drawing three hallmarks of this faith community. Three things that we can look at and say, if we look like this, and we look like the community that Paul is, is dreaming up. Quite what it looks like for us, we need to have a think and a prayer about and do some contextualising. But the three hallmarks seem to be that it, it feels and it sounds like a good place to be. The second hallmark is it's full of self-sacrificial love. And the third hallmark, it is full of joy and thankfulness. And that to me in this passage is the community that God is, through Paul's words, is calling us to be. That's me done. I have no more to say.